Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Great Falls. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Broadway Bullet, Volume 708, Get Off the Ground, February 27th, 2017. To not miss an episode, be sure you subscribe to the podcast at broadwaybullet.com. Now, on to the program. In this episode, Lynn Wintersteller stops by to talk about her sustained career acting on stage. Brian Loudermilk discusses his career and process with songwriting. Joel B. New comes in to talk about the unique angle of his podcast, Something New. Robin Goldfin and David Carson discuss adapting the tales of Edgar Caret for the stage and the process of raising funds to get a production up in NYC. So stay tuned here. We've got a lot in this final episode of Season 7. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. A location sponsorship also goes out to the longest-running play in America, Sheer Madness, now, finally, in New York City at the New World Stages. Go check out this funny show that'll leave you laughing and guessing the entire way through. And no, that's not what they told me to say. I saw the show. All right, on to volume 708. This is our final episode for the season, and this was a very protracted season. But we are coming back. I will be in New York again from May 15th through the 20th to do interviews. So if you've got something coming up, Hey, get a hold of me, let me know, and I'll try to see if I can get you in and get you interviewed. It's going to be fun. We're going to be bringing two of my students uh, as well to help out, and they're going to get to see a lot of how this, this stuff works. And that's part of uh, what we're going to be doing with our program. I've got a brand new major at the University of Great Falls, a program that I designed and pitched and is going to have its inaugural year next year. It is the Department of Theater and Business Arts. 
The idea is we teach you not only the art of being an artist, but the business of being an artist. Kind of ties in with what I always kind of touted through the show here. So um, if you are in high school and interested in uh, heading to college and you want to check out our program, uh, there's a link on our website at broadwaybullet.com up at the top of the website. So uh, check it out. All right. Well, we're going to not delay any longer. Let's get on with the show. Up Close. There are times when doing this podcast has its real big thrills for me. And uh, one of that was when I went to go see Sheer Madness, which we've covered a couple other times in the season, and I saw the name Lynn Wintersteller in the program, and I was just so excited. If you haven't listened to Closer Than Ever, the uh, off it was a Broadway Nin- cast. It brought uh, off Broadway. It was off Nineteen eighty nine yeah. and ninety. So that'll yeah. show you how long ago that was. But it is truly uh, for learning how to act and perform a song, even just on oh, audio. It is like theater one hundred and one for musical theaters. If you haven't listened to Close to the Never, you must. And Lynn Wintersteller, out of four amazing people, Lynn Wintersteller was my absolute favorite <laughs> on that cast album. I, I truly think she's just knows how to interpret a song like no other. And uh, Thank you, Michael. And she sustained a career for such a long time and a career that's hard to do that, especially if you haven't achieved like name, name recognition. Mm -hmm. And so I I invited her in to talk about that kind of aspect of maintaining a career for everybody out there. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Well, I can go now. That was a great compliment opener. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is, um, you know, you have your, your lucky moments and that was one of them. You know, I, I got purely a gifted song and show handed to me early on in my career, and it's still going on. How, how early in your career was uh, Closer Than Ever? Uh, what, what had been... I had come to... I had done Annie, the national tours of Annie uh, out of D.C. Uh, <laughs> um, I booked the job, and um, so I had... Uh, my equity card, an agent, all that stuff early on out of, out of, from the national tour before I even moved to New York. So I got very lucky. That was my Cinderella story. And so I came to New York with an agent and with um, money and my mm-hmm. equity card, and, and that did help a little bit. But I did have to temp a lot of mm-hmm. years as well at a law firm um, in the evenings, uh, word processing and stuff like that, supplementing income and auditioning and during the day and running around and trying to keep all the balls in the air, I guess, and pay your rent. It, it is a challenge to, uh, I mean, I think you really do have to love it to come to New York and break in because it's, I call it opportunity cost. Yes, you know, um, that's a good way to frame it, exactly. Because you have to take the early things that you need to take to break mm-hmm. in a career, if you're like, mm-hmm. they're not going to pay very well. No. And they're going to eat up your time. Exactly. And you usually... What's really kind of cool about New York, um, whether it's... Um, you know, it's it's called the, the support job. Whether you're waiting tables or whether you're working in a law firm or any kind of corporation or, or if they have a 24-7, even weekend uh, sort of shifts, third shift, second shift, weekend shifts, as an actor, you can have your days free to run around an audition. It does 
cut into, you know, memorizing for an audition and really being prepared, but um, you just do the best you can because, it, like you said, you have to love it. I, I almost... I hesitate to say this, but it really is a vocation. It's almost like a calling. If you have to do it and there's a passion to express yourself as an artist, you'll figure out a way to make it work. <laughs> does that answer? I mean, does yeah. that help? I mean, that helps all the students out there going, how am I going to make it, you know, make it in the in show business? The idea of making it in show business and whatever that making it is has to satisfy you. So if you want to be a star, if you want to just, if that's your goal, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and an unfortunate thing, I would say, like, but my, uh, my playwriting professor always he quoted, theater famous ain't famous. Theater famous, <laughs> theater famous, I, I, and I pride myself on this. Yeah. I'm an industry name. Mm-hmm. I'm a working actress. Yeah. And so there's a lot to be said for that. And there's a lot of us that are, I would call them the frontline soldiers of, of theater. You know, you, you, we work a lot, but, you know, you put a lot of dues in. You, you put a, eight shows a week is... is athleticism <laughs> and keeping yourself healthy while you do that, whether it's a musical or a play, keeping it fresh every time you saw it on Sunday night, mm-hmm. you know, the show has been running for two and a half months now, keeping it, reminding ourselves as we step out the first time you've ever seen it or heard about it, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's keeping it, there's a whole craft to it that I think when kids watch TV or they watch American Idol and those things are wonderful. Those contests are fantastic, but that's not the be all and end all. That's yeah. not the craft part of it. The craft part of is, is the boots on the ground, mm-hmm. so to speak, um, you know, learning lines, uh, being disappointed you didn't get a job, got down to the wire, didn't get it, you know, oh, how many times do I have to go in for Wicked, blah, 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 that kind of thing, before they'll really take me seriously. How can I get seen for Wicked? I'm just using that as an example, but, you know, it, and then it's, keeping, it's a struggle. And, and then keeping, keeping positive. That des- yeah, and keeping the desperation out of oh, your audition. Oh, boy, let me tell you something. If you walk into an audition desperate, they can smell it. The auditors can smell it a mile away. So you just have to go in doing your best and, and give it your best shot and be satisfied with that. And get a support group. Get other actors around you that, you know, I'm feeling like crap today. I had a great audition and they could have cared less. There was no energy in the room and I need to go get a drink or I need to just call you and cry. <laughs> uh, and then, you know what? Bounce back. Figure a way, again, to make it work. You, you will. You will. I trust. I trust that. Yeah, you will. I think it's oh, important. You listeners out there. I think. Yeah, I think it's important to figure out how to not make the audition important. Like I tell my students, you have to be prepared. Yeah. I think that's the most. Yes. The most nervous I am at an audition, and uh, and I still get nervous. I hate to audition, to be honest with you. But <laughs> who, I still, who does? I know because you know you're really self conscious. You're walking into a room, whether it's five people behind a table or thirty seven, which happened to me in Miss Saigon. Early, I, I walked into a final callback for Miss Saigon for thirty seven people behind the table. I was doing a performance, and a lot of times is if you're not feeling confident, you're not prepared. You haven't really worked on your audition enough, to whether it's to get off book, whether it's to just you know warm up. You're just not prepared, and you just can give it so much. So you have to be prepared as much as you can. The other thing is, is if you don't get a job, those five people behind the table are are doing other projects. Yeah, They're not just doing that project. So if you don't get that one, a lot of times I've gotten jobs from auditions that I didn't book, but they were they kept me, they filed me away in their minds for the next project that they had going down the pike later on. So it's... Um, 
always give a good audition. Yeah. You never know where you're planting those seeds. Like I'll be, we're in a small place, you know, in, you know, in Montana and kind of community theater, but I always tell my uh, students and even the community members, I said, even if you can't do the show or don't want to do that show right. audition, right. you learn so much when you don't care. Right. I mean, you still got to prepare, but, but it's a, you start to learn Not a disrespectful don't care. Like yeah. don't care as in make it the be all and end all. You don't put all yeah. your eggs in that one basket of the show. Exactly. Yeah, it's not I that person going, Oh, I've got to be Mrs. Lovett. I've got to be Mrs. Exactly. Lovett. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, because they can, you can, you're a human being. I mean, mm. if you're auditioning that you can sense that from someone. You, you can sense their desperateness and, and their need for money, a job. A lot of times, I've got to get this job. I've got to get insurance weeks. I've got, I mean, there's a lot to, a lot of pressure that we put on ourselves. And then another, mm-hmm. another little inside clue, if you can be a reader for an audition, it is eye-opening. It's not about you yeah. for the audition, but you start to watch as the actors leave the room. Everyone is good. Everyone mm-hmm. coming into a room is good. They're not necessarily right for that one particular project. So what we do as actors is we leave and beat ourselves up. And there's no point in that. Did you do the best you could that day? That's all you got to ask yourself. Yeah. Did you have fun? Well, then Did plus the being best? a reader, you do get a chance close. Even though it's not about you, the people who are in the room there get a chance to f- you, they know talk, you. They, they talk <laughs> about you when you leave that room. Yeah. And it's not about your performance. They talk mm-hmm. about, well, I'll, uh, this is a great, I got great advice early on. Uh, God rest her soul, um, a casting director named Barbara Hipkiss. She's passed away now. She, um, we were talking during one of my callbacks for something, and she came out to schmooze. And she said to me, you know, Lynn, actors are in control of two things and two things only. One, their talent. Two, their reputations, and nine times out of 10, we cast on the latter. Very interesting. So I went, oh. So in other words, if we have two Lynn Winterstellers and one's a pain in the butt, (laughs) we're not going to cast that one. We're going to, and what happens is when you leave that room, they talk about you. They go, we want her. Does anybody have any dirt? Does anybody have any stuff? Does anybody have any stories that they know about? Is this person difficult to work with, to spend even three months with or three weeks with? Is this going to be a difficult process? Or do we all agree? Do we like her? Good. Book her. Good. Call her agent. I mean, that's really, mm-hmm. that's what they're talking about when you leave. They're not talking about, oh, look, she, she wore the wrong skirt. <laughs> Terrible song that she sang. Oh, why didn't mm-hmm. she, you know. I mean, I don't know. Do you teach audition classes as well? Not really the same way because we we're not a major. We don't okay. have a, But I do try to encourage. We have a couple students that like have that idea, and I try to tailor right. certain things for certain students right. that maybe express a desire to go further. But, yeah, like I said, that, that whole idea of being... Being like, I mean, one thing that Broadway Bullet has, you know, taught me so much, mm-hmm. you know, meeting so many people over the years is how incredibly nice, like 99.9% of the people that come in here, not just like slightly nice, like really open and generous. I and, think you have to have yeah. an open spirit to be an artist. And I'm talking not just actor, I'm talking dancer, I'm talking uh, 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 painter, I mean, uh, writer. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you get your muse, you get, um, I don't know, energy, call it energy, call it uh, spirituality, whatever. That you ha- it's, a, it's a big risk to just put something out there that you've thought up in your head mm-hmm. that we started talking yeah. about before the interview, you know, where you create something, whether it's an audition process or not, you create something in your head or how I'm going to play Mrs. Schubert in Sheer Madness. You know, um, yeah, I got the job. Now it's 
rehearse it <laughs> and develop her and make her three dimensional and you know and it's it's interesting because it really is a it's something that you just you're creating out of thin air. Yeah. Is is that does that sound really hokey or no. did I explain it enough? Yeah. Where it's just a, it's a real interesting, uh, you know, when you have an idea for a script, or you get you get inspired by a student that wants to you want to write yeah. about or their storyline, you know, it comes from your imagination. It comes from your head. It comes from somewhere, some energy, some creativity, some muse, some spiritual force. I think, and I think most actors to the nice degree are open and. Um, open-minded and open spirits. I really do. We get hurt a lot too, because yeah. that makes you also very vulnerable and sensitive and overly sensitive to um, uh, commenta- comments or ridicule. Yeah, You have to have a safe, uh, I, I used to call it the safety net. Now, speaking of that, it was interesting. I'll put it back to Sheer Madness for a oh, second. Yeah. <laughs> we sat in this room, the very room that we're having the interview, for about the first three days with a script that none of us had seen. I hear it's like four inches thick. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> it's like about uh, like 1,700 or 170 pages or something. Yeah. Um, but we sat here with a script with possible jokes that are already, um, we're at the advantage because the show's been running for 35 years in Boston. But we sat here... Going, we're actors. We don't. We're not comics. We don't write jokes. We don't blah blah blah. Now it's sort of the framework is there, but as we spitballed in a room, we had to like come up with some real edgy stuff. And a lot of times it was like, eh, that was awful. <laughs> eh. And you had to get a thick skin about that. You had to get like, I feel really safe to throw an idea out here, because it's going to be lambasted by the rest of my colleagues. And yet we all found a way to throw it in the mix. And we, you know, we. A couple moments we had like, ouch, that hurt. That was that was harsh. But we eventually found a way to all find our rhythms together. So it's fun. Mm-hmm. In terms of opportunity cost, too, I think there's, and how, how do you balance it? I feel like there's two things that actors who are new especially have right? to figure out is whether they want to, you know, make a living being replacements or going on tour mm-hmm. or spending a lot of time, you know, chasing that, Tony nomination, which a lot of times involves kind of getting in a project really early right. at the reading stage, development right. cycle, but that's chasing a lot of things that go nowhere. Just it could or could. So, yeah. I mean, you know, so I mean, let's use Kelly O'Hara as yeah. an example, and I could be totally speaking out of turn. She's mm-hmm. a lovely, lovely, uh, beautiful performer. Um, she's worked with Bart Sure, you know what? How many three or four shows yeah. now? They just have a great working relationship. Um, were they setting out to get her Tony nom or Tony? I mean, I don't know. It's not a plan. It's not a planned thing. Yeah. No one can say, "Oh, I'm going to get the Tony this year." Yeah, I'm just going to look for that project that's going to make me g- get to that next step. Right, you but can that, but think that, that but I don't know the reality of that. Yeah. I don't know if you can actually make that happen. Well, it's not make that happen, but if you want it to happen, you You stay in town. Exactly. You you make the gamble to stay in town. It's a gamble. It's a risk. Um, There were two incidences with an actor, with two actors, a a male and a female actor that I know, are friends of mine, that they were working on the roles that uh, out out of town, tryouts and, and, and tours and such, and when it came in, they were looking, the producers were looking for stars to take over. Mm-hmm. And luckily, both of them got to come in with it. And one got a Tony Award for mm-hmm. it. So it was Vicki Clark in Light in the Piazza and Bob Cuccioli in um, Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, because they were looking for box office, you know, uh, yeah. uh, I, what is it, um, <laughs> Q, uh, where 
I'm, try, I'm not trying to think of the word. I can't think it too hard. But, you know, where you can sell tickets easier. That's mm-hmm. all. And it lucked out for them. I don't know if they actually, well, they took the risk mm-hmm. to do get you, their hearts broken after they developed the role, you yeah. know? So, and it paid off for them both. So, do you do them. a lot of development stuff for reading I do. stuff Nymph, early on? Speaking and, of nymph yeah. and stuff, yeah. uh, <clears throat> yes. I love to work on a project that's brand new. Again, it's out of somebody's yeah. head. You get to put your stamp on it. I mean, if it comes in, it comes in. That's great. But there's other variables. I love creating the clarity of the story. Like, oh, there's nothing. But that does that doesn't pay. <laughs> that doesn't pay. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times it's readings or, you know, a lot of times they, they, they won't even ask you your opinion. I've been very, very fortunate to work with directors I've known that, that have said, what do you think, Lynn? I'm like, well, there's A and C. There's B is missing. I don't know where the transition is here. Or we can bump up the character, my character, and this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, a lot of times I'll get the honor to be able to do that. But on the same like hand, that. they could pay off. Like, I believe Heidi Blickenstaff's career was pretty much made by she was willing to work on this little nothing for a nymph called Title of Show with, yeah. with a yeah. friend. And, you know, and, and now she's continuing to get roles afterwards. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. But that's what I mean. It's not that you can aim for a Tony. Or yeah. Anything, I mean. But that I think. Something that specific, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But, but you can look for. Oh, we all do it, though. We all look to originate a role. Mm-hmm. Again and again and again, because that does it puts you on the CD. That puts you. You have your name stamped. To, you did it first. That is a working actor. Mm-hmm. That is the best. That is the Quan. If you want to talk about that's that's being able to just. Yeah, I started this. Yeah, um, yeah, and everybody else who has to sing your songs has to come <laughs> up to what you did. I guess that's kind of fun. Mm. A little bit of ego stroke. Earlier on in the interview, you talked about how um, maintaining freshness in a long run mm-hmm. is a is a big deal, and I think it's one thing that people can go to school and train, but it's it's one thing that nobody really ever quite can experience. I think until they get the job, right? Um, so, what techniques or do you have any ideas? How do you keep a role fresh for six months, a year, more? <laughs> uh, now, this is going to sound. I do it. This is me. Um, Either when I'm walking to the theater, I will look, I will walk through Times Square, our, our theater in particular right now. I will walk through like 49th Street or 48th Street through parts of Times Square. I will f- go past Broadway shows. There are people lining up. These are people from Montana, mm-hmm. Des Moines. You know, I mean, they're fr- from all over the world coming to New York. They've chosen your show to come to. They've spent hard-earned dollars, whether it's discount mm-hmm. or not. You know, they spent money to see you and they chose your show that night. You better make it fresh. And right before I go out, um, before I, ma- I say, my, I go over my first, lo- first three lines in this show before I make my entrance. And I just go, these people, just remind yourself, these people are paying money and they really are seeing it for the first time. It's just, that's a trick that I do for my own. Take the journey. Mm-hmm. Don't jump to the end of the show because you're tired tonight. Go one line at a time. They deserve this. That's just me. I don't know what other actors do to keep it fresh. I don't know. Um, our show kind of is a cheat fresh in the sense that the audience tells us, dictates mm-hmm. to us what we're going to be talking about um, in Sheer Madness every night. So it's really yeah. kind of different. The shows, there's certain, there's certain scripted sections of our show, but then there's the free, the, 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 there's the open. There's times where you're the still cracking section. each other up on oh stage, yeah, too. Yeah. It's just oh, really yeah. wonderful to see. It's, yeah. it's like, <laughs> this cast that I yeah. work with, I mean, this is an amazing, we have a lot of trust with each other. 
we have a lot of treasure. There was one night I blanked on some Isabel Turney <laughs> line, and Kate had my back, and so did um, uh, Jordan. They knew. They, they jumped right in and saved me, and I was like, oh, thank you, God. I, I had no idea. I kept just going, Isabel Journey. Isabel <laughs> Journey. Like every syllable of her name, I was like, come on, line, come to me. And then they were they helped me. They, they got me back on track. So it's, 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 we have safety nets. And Patrick Noonan. Did you? Yeah, we talked yeah. to Patrick. Oh man! First of all, the guy's done this show before, so mm-hmm. he knew. But he, you know, he's like the MC of the show, and he really controls the audience. And he, you know, he. I called him my safety net like the first three weeks of the mm-hmm. run because man, if I didn't have an answer, he would switch the subject and he would just take off and or give me you know leeway to mm-hmm. find it. You know, it's fun. Yeah. So it's just a quick wrap up. What okay. have been uh, some of your, a couple of your, maybe your favorite roles that were least expected to you? <gasps> Kiss Me Kate. Um, I did it twice. And I uh, last minute replaced someone and had to learn it in 10 days. And I'm telling you, it turned out to be a role that fit me like a glove. Um, Sunset Boulevard. Um, uh, Clyburn Park. I mean, that's straight plays. And, and Amanda Wingfield. Like, who knew all these? I never thought I could do Amanda Wingfield. I, I just it wasn't on my radar at all. And then when it's presented, you go, oh, I'm going to read this. And again, trusting your gut, going, I, I get this woman. I, 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 okay, this will be fun. I'll, I'll, this is worth my time and energy. Because um, once I'm in a show, I'm in it. I'm, I'm full throttle in something, and I won't take anything else you know, until it's done or you know, until something else incredible comes along. So... All right. Well, Lynn Winterstiller, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I wish we could talk, talk longer. We can. We'll do it. At, I'll yeah. come to Montana. Yeah. And what? Totally. Come on, Ronnie. Let's go. And, and we'll maybe trip. do another acting masterclass when I come back <laughs> here, too. So, But I know it. you have to run up the street I do. to go to uh, your matinee. matinee. Thank <laughs> you, guys, so much for having me. I, it was an honor, and it's always an honor to talk about Closer Than Ever, too, I have to say. It, it still is one of those wonderful badges, badges I get to wear. Okay. And I'm not complaining. So off he went with his hair of bronze To find a life like Khalil Gibran's I got my rest from the drugs he did He got his quest, I got the kid And oh, I'm not complaining All right, a quick reminder to everybody, too. Um, I edit these uh, interviews so that we have kind of like a magazine in audio form where you can hear a lot of different things. But I have gotten a lot more interview, and I talked with all of these people for a lot longer. So if you go to broadwaybullet.com, you can also find um, in the show notes a link and uh, listen to all of the complete unedited interviews. It's a great way to find out even more, especially uh, if somebody has uh, topics that are of particular interest to you. All right, so check those out. Let's move on. Listening Room. I'm about to interview Brian Loudermilk here, and I figured, well, why not play some of uh, Kerrigan and Loudermilk's music? I won't talk too much since we do go talk a lot with Brian Loudermilk, but from Kerrigan and Loudermilk's album, Our First Mistake, this is Not a Love Story, sung by Kelly O'Hara. It's not a love story. It's not a coming of age. It's not the kind of thing you put into a play It's just a small story Just two friends all grown up It happens, it happens, it happens 
Though it was hardly winter, a passerby would say he'd seen it all before. The folded arms, the wounded eyes, the signs that we both ignored. The old cathedral looming in the shadows, the only thing we saw amid the thread of tears.
I have sitting here with me Brian Loudermilk of the up-and-coming, emerging, how long is that term apply, <laughs> uh, Kerrigan Loudermilk Songwriting Partnership. Uh, he writes so much stuff uh, coming out. He's also co-founder of NewMusicalTheater.com, uh, which is a great resource, uh, both for people looking for new musical theater songs, as well as an uh, exposure outlet for other composers. So, uh, Brian, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. I'm so happy to be here. I'm sorry you only have me. There's no Kate Kerrigan. A little bit of a letdown, but I'll try and be I'll try and be as exciting as the full team. Well, I, I wouldn't have minded a screaming baby throughout the whole I think she has an excuse. Kate and her husband, Nathan Tyson, had a baby about a month ago. So they're under lockdown in Brooklyn right now. Oh, okay. So. I didn't realize Tyson was uh they did uh fugitive songs, right? Or yeah, he, absolutely. I, I interviewed and him the upcoming... a while well a while back. Yeah, mm. and they have a Tuck Everlasting coming out on Broadway this spring, so a big year for yeah. the Kerrigan Tyson family. <laughs> so, what's been? Uh, first off, tell us a little bit about where where you guys are at in in, in your composing career because you've burst. You're kind of bursting. You're getting a lot of notoriety. You haven't had that big Broadway thing yet, so you're in that kind of emerging thing. How do you go about pushing yourself? How do you promote yourself? What's well, so we, we're in a really great place right now. We're doing a lot of really weird, awesome things. We just had an immersive musical go up in Brooklyn in January. Uh, it was really weird and awesome. It's like totally geometric theater. So there's no less than four or five songs happening at once. And the audience was just moving through the entire piece. There are people singing emotional musical theater songs a foot away from your face. Mm. Um, and it re also really felt like a house party. So that was, that was that really sounds cool. like any actor's party. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Right. No, it definitely <laughs> was pretty close to <laughs> just a nor just a normal Saturday night in some parts of the city. But, uh, that was really cool. And that'll be back, uh, hopefully in the next six months somewhere else. Um, so what's that one called again? That's called the bad years. Mm -hmm. And that has, um, that has uh, a surprising percentage of some of the songs that, um, maybe are most known by us or most heard in audition rooms and things like that. So, uh, but it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's got a story, uh, and it's, it kind of opens with a big set piece and closes with a big set piece. So you, you are able to track a story and to follow characters through it. But, uh, there's also some really unique things about it that you can only do in an immersive house party musical there are duets that start in separate rooms and then converge into one there are quintets that take place across the space and you might be you might find yourself looking around trying to hear where those vocals are coming from you have um backup vocals that are spaced out all around the entire party and vary based on where you're standing so um the space itself becomes another character in the piece and you know, the long gestation process we've had on that has allowed us to discover new, ter new territory to go into, new ways to push the boundaries of what's possible in that kind of format. So that sounds really interesting. Did, uh, did Sleep No More play, play into your ideas for this? Or the, Sleep No More is incredible. Yeah. I think that the, the, the best comparison to Sleep No More is to say that the heightened emotional song beats that happen in the bad years mm -hmm. are probably a corollary to the dance moments that happen in Sleep No More. Mm -hmm. um, I think that our piece is a little bit more strict with plotting. Um, we sort of have it plotted out in a way that 
regardless of the choices you make, you're still going to follow certain main characters and still go from point A to point B in the evening and follow a story. Or at least that's the hope. <laughs> we'll have mm-hmm. to ask again when it's when it's up in its mm-hmm. final form if we've succeeded or not. But that's the that's the plan. So what other projects do you have gestating? Well, we uh, we have a piece called Republic. That's an adaptation of Henry IV set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Uh, and that's something that we're working on with the Arden Theater in Philadelphia. Uh, Kate and I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so it's really cool to be working with uh, Terry Nolan at the Arden Theater, who was kind of, you know, that's a bit of a hometown place for us. The, some of my first memories of the theater were going to see shows at the Arden, and it was the first place I worked professionally. So it feels like coming home, and it's a great place to be working on something like that. Republic is a sung-through musical, and currently it's in three acts. So that's yeah. another big one. Lately, Kate and I have been kind of bursting at the seams and kind of overreaching and doing just the biggest things we can imagine. And um, Republic's definitely one of those things. And so is the bad years. Again, you Mm -hmm. know, the nice thing about musicals taking a long time to get up uh, is that you... Once you accept that and you there's there's a lot of freedom that comes with that to go, okay, if I'm going to work on something that might take five or ten years, well, damn it, I'm going to work on the thing I want to make and I'm going to make it um, exactly what I want it to be. And I'm not going to be scared of doing something that's very ambitious because, you know, this isn't something we're throwing together that we're hoping to get up in a couple months. This is this is something you're you're. This is something you're going all in on. And increasingly, that's true of every project for us. Uh, what is your process like when you're when you're putting together the show? Do you work in spurts or do you work like just a little bit, you know, throughout constantly? Or, you know, do you outline it first? And what's kind of your, your per own process putting together the show? Well, you know, I... It always depends on uh, on the project. There are pieces where a director is really involved. There are pieces where we're just on our own. Uh, Kate and I have a really flexible collaboration where sometimes we'll work with another playwright or another songwriter that's part of the mix, too. But in general, um, we tend to spend a lot of time talking to each other. And that's true of me when I'm working with other playwrights as well, when I'm out there. I mean, it always just starts on a couch or around some food, uh, and you're just sitting around talking about, well, what is this supposed to be? And gradually getting to a place where you're beating it out uh, more and more elaborately until at the very last minute you say, well, I guess there's nothing left to do now but to write it. And Mm -hmm. even then, you know, a lot of back and forth. Uh, I primarily am a music person, but I write words too. And in the case of my collaboration with Kate... Um, you know, she played the violin growing up and she has a a big musical background too. So you just throw around a lot of references. You say, oh, what if it was more like this? What if it was more like that? And then you change locations and order more food and (laughs) just keep bouncing around until finally you have a musical. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, is there more, do you like outline the whole thing first and kind of spot the songs or do you go in order or, you know, or... Increasingly, we outline more and more and more. And, uh, you know, if you take something like uh, Republic, which is based on Shakespeare's Henry IV, we started from, you know, making an outline of uh, the full Henry IV, and then we sort of started condensing that down from two parts into one 
larger piece from 10x to i don't know mm-hmm. like eight and then to six <laughs> and like and we condensed and condensed and condensed and until it became something manageable um but in its current form uh we've written the first two acts of it and we're working on the third and uh by the time we really start writing it it'll be you know anywhere from like a 15 to 20 page outline with like hyper detailed spreadsheets mm-hmm. and you know, the minutia of structure measured out of, of how we're making our way through the piece. And I increasingly, I track themes in advance through a piece and plan it all out because why not? If you know, you have the time, if you know, you are gonna, it's going to take a while to get it up, like take your time and make sure you're getting it right. Uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of where we are now in our process. Uh, of course, things come up. Uh, we wrote a really cool podcast musical with Rachel Axler uh, for Naked Angels for a podcast that they run a few months ago. And we, you know, ate some food with Rachel Axler. She's an amazing playwright and uh, and television writer. We sat around with her. And we said, what if we wrote this weird idea as a podcast musical? She went away. She wrote a script. Kate wrote some lyrics. I wrote some songs. We each spent between, you know, five and six hours on it, on our own, never being in the same room, Mm -hmm. just emailed it back and forth. Really proud of the final product. A totally different process Mm -hmm. than something like, you know, Republic or The Bad Years. So um, what was your impetus? You're also, you said you're co-founder of New Musical Theater. What was the impetus for starting up that website? Well, we, I started out selling my sheet music. Well, okay. I started out giving my sheet music away, of yeah. course. Um, if you had gone to brianloudermilk.com back when I, um, I guess before I was writing with Kate, um, brianloudermilk.com, I was writing my own music and lyrics and uh, giving the sheet music away along with the recordings on my website. And then enough people were downloading them that I kind of went, oh, wait. No. Okay. Sorry. I'm totally misspeaking. I started at, it started out with a mailing address and people would just request through email sheet music and I would mail them sheet music for free. Right. Like Mm -hmm. there was no PDF. There was no, just like, let me email you sheet music. I mailed it to them for free. And then that became, Oh wait, there's PDFs. I can just have you like, Mm -hmm. I can just send these to you um, for free as PDFs. And then I started charging for them And then at some point we were getting enough sales and I'd started writing with Kate and Kate started writing lyrics and we started working together and we had enough songs that started to get out there that I kind of went, we should automate this. We should build out, we should work with this programmer to build, you know, a secure delivery system. And at that point, once we had done that, I said, well, this is silly. We should, other people should use this too. We should all kind of have a central place where we're selling our sheet music and we can probably find a way to balance the numbers on that so it's the lowest royalty rate in the, or sorry, the highest royalty rate in the industry. The <laughs> we pay percentage. the lowest. We <laughs> thought we could pay the writers the least. No, um, <laughs> we thought we could pay the writers the absolute most that could, that was conceivable, and that's still true. How does how, yeah, how does a writer get on, is there, are there criteria for who you choose to sell on the site, or... Yeah, we we have enough like accounting overhead mm-hmm. that we kind of have to um we kind of have to make sure that it that the amount of sheet music you sell is going to clear the accounting overhead. <laughs> um so we we you know we 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 look at um we look at YouTube views and we look at um whether or not you're already selling your sheet music somewhere. 
also, you know, if you've had like a Jonathan Larson award or you've had like some kind of industry uh, achievement, we will take that into consideration. So are audition songs like generally the biggest sellers on that site? Yeah, absolutely. So in your opinion as a writer, what makes for a good audition song? A standalone audition song that somebody's going to write. What what do you think of yourself when trying to do that? Gosh, I okay, I genuinely hate to use my own songs as an example, but let me give you an example of one of my songs that I've been told is a very good audition song and another song that has been I've been told is a very bad audition song yeah, and which I gener- generally agree with both statements and I will also uh I will also proceed that by saying I don't think either is a very good audition song because both are sort of overdone. But uh, the two songs I'll talk about are Say the Word and Run Away With Me. Uh, Say the Word is, uh, both songs are from a musical called uh, The Girl Who Drove Away, which used to be titled The Unauthorized Autobiography of Samantha Brown. You can see why we changed the title. But uh, Say the Word is, um, it's a mislanding point in the show. It's a moment where the character decides that she's going to give up on all the things she's been saying she wanted in the show um, to stay with her boyfriend. And it's a it's a false decision, a false landing point that she eventually like finds her way through. And uh, the song itself is this like really lovely, like giving in and saying, say the word, anything you want, I will do that. It's the most passive sentiment possible and thus sort of dies in an audition room. There's something about it that um, there's something about it that is just like asking you to sit back and, and, um, and it, it, it doesn't push you in. It doesn't make you lean in. It's not ask. It's, it's passive versus something like run away with me, which I've been told is a very good audition song. It's asking something it's saying, um, it's well, it's literally saying run away with me. Yeah. But it's it's imagine a, that. It, no, it's asking yeah, something yeah. to the people yeah. from the other side of the table. The character is using um an enormous number of tactics to get their point across and to try and convince the other character to do the thing he wants you to do. Uh in the show, it has dramatic stakes because the character the, the character says no, uh, which people I think don't usually know is what happens in the show. The whole show is a journey of this main character, Sam. Um, uh, into taking action in her life and finally doing the one thing that she's meant to do and wanted to do in reality. On the last parting shot, do you have any advice for up-and-coming composers and lyricists trying to crack this very lucrative field? <laughs> um, tell your own stories. Tell, um, find your own voice. Uh, don't be scared. Just start making things. Grab your friends, pull them into a room. Just start going. Uh, adapt things that already work. Learn from the people who've come before you and done it better than you. Not, not, not me. Uh, the people who've come before all of us and done it so much better. Read, listen. Well, thanks, Brian Loudermilk, for coming on. And uh, we'll hear more from you later, I'm sure. And hopefully featuring uh, some prime cuts from uh, New Musical Theater. Absolutely. Let's do it. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I'm so glad this exists. Shots all around I'm drafting you a text I'm typing sorry I'm sleepy Another night Sad face OX 
flows into any mixture you can find. Mini skirts shift. I see the lift of her ass. My pocket vibrates. I won't look. It's you again. And you're not here. She makes a pass. Screw the phone, screw you and all your stupid rules.
signs are proof the world runs to chaos I go outside and that's when I see you and you say don't talk I'm sorry I'm scared of this well I'm scared too was Matt Doyle singing uh, Carrie Ginn and Loudermilk's song, Our Last Alcohol, from their Our First Mistake CD. That's available everywhere on Amazon, etc. And, of course, iTunes, so you should pick that up. All right, we got another one on the way. Talking the Trades. All right, well, I am sitting here uh, in a last-minute interview that I was very happy to find out that Joel B. New, a uh, guy I knew from, from back when, a friend, a, a guy, a composer, among many other things uh, who I had worked with, has a podcast himself, Something New. I do indeed. Uh, and uh, he was actually recording the same space, so I was talking to Tess at the DG Fund, and she was so excited, and they were so gracious to have us in, and she's going, and I'm just discovering this podcast thing <laughs> and uh, a guy's coming in here to do his podcast and it's uh, his name's Joel B. New I'm like Joel I know him and, uh, and I think I had your number you one point me. yeah yeah so, you literally called yeah, so I called Joel I said Joel you're in the same space I am you want to do an interview and, and I said yes <laughs> and here we are <laughs> so, uh, so Joel, I, I understand you're going into your fourth season. Fourth season, yes. Of something yeah. new. Mm-hmm. Four years. And uh, the way Tess was telling me, you have a very specific angle. Yeah, yeah. Doing. It was important to me that that if I were to do this, that it wasn't like quote unquote like just another like interview show. Like I needed to have something even more specific than just theater. And for me, that was interviewing performing artists who also do something else. Um, either like wait tables. Like, like, <laughs> I've not, not interviewed a waiter yet, a waiter yet. <laughs> but something else like also like uh, linked related to the arts or like runs parallel. They they fa- they found a second career that they don't look at as like the one that pays the bills or the or like a second lesser than career. So I talk to people who balance. Two careers, whether it's you know acting and photography, or I interviewed a dialect coach, or I interview um, a choreographer, or something. So like they're supplementing not only their income, but they're also su- supplementing their art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get to talk about that, and it's just my way of um, 
just kind of giving my listeners permission to not limit themselves in any way. Like, you can say, like, you know, be very careful where you say no. You can, you know, just keep saying yes to yourself. Yeah. I think it's important. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, I definitely relate. Yeah, <laughs> right, that side right? of the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that something that personally relates to you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I definitely, um, I grew up wanting to be an actor. And, you know, and I, I followed that dream all the way through undergrad. Um, but many steps along the way, people would say things like, you know, if you can think of anything else that you could do, you should probably go do that and give this up. Not to belittle my talent, but just in a very realistic way. And um, I think there's a very similar scene in Center Stage when Peter Gallagher <laughs> tells his students, if there's something else you want to do, you should go do that. And not be at ABT or something like that. <laughs> I remember when that movie came out and I was, I was like oh yep I've met that guy before and so um, so anyway I just throughout my life my career I've um, I've met some really really fascinating artists who just happen to also do something else I'm like oh so no one told you that you had to give this up to go do that or they told you and you didn't listen and so yeah it's definitely it's very personal for me yeah um so, what have been what have been some of the ways that people? That's that's good advice is dangerous. I feel sometimes. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, absolutely. If 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 you're going to succumb to that advice, you probably should have found something else. So, in, in that sense, it's not dangerous. I think artists need to be tested. Um, absolutely. But I think what you, I think what the type of people you're talking to seem more like what I was telling um, Ronnie uh, Jones, who came. She's career switching, and she assisted me. Uh, this week is my advice kind of that thing and where I've kind of gone with that is find something you enjoy doing that's flexible (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 Uh, and it doesn't it doesn't seem what (laughs) it always isn't what seems because you know, you know, she's an English major. I said, "Oh, you should absolutely investigate editing, because there's a slew of editors, you know, mm-hmm. on on you know independent writers now online that are willing to pay for editorial services. It's something you can do wherever. Um, it'll actually make you some real money. Yeah. Um, and when you do get a job in theater, something you can do that at three a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah." So, uh, how many people fall into that that you talk to fall into that kind of camp where they found something flexible that allows them to do their primary thing, or is it more that it shifted and that something else has become the thing? The thing. Uh, I'd say it's really fifty-fifty. You know, I've talked to you know I had a photographer on who it really was like this. It was more supplemental for him, uh, but then if I talk, you know, I talked to um, someone who started like really get into 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 vocal coaching and like went back to school and you know now he's the one of the vocal coaches for uh school of rock mm-hmm. and you know but he and so that really it really it shifted for him mm-hmm. so it's, it's probably about half and half all right well again your podcast is called something new and uh is that what they search on on, on, yep. uh, on itunes it's on itunes it's on stitcher it's on um, all the tune in give a website for joelbnew.com joelbnew.com nice and that's my handle pretty much on everything face uh in instagram twitter on facebook it's joelbnewsongs because mm-hmm. joelbnews is my 
normal, my human <laughs> profile. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, you, you can find me. You'd be hard pressed not to find me. All right. Well, thank you so much. Best of luck in season four. Thank you. <laughs> same, same with you, Michael. Thank right. you for having me on your show. On the boards. Suddenly, a knock at the door is a new play with music that will be going up in June, and so. Luckily, we had somebody who knew the director and author early on. We're doing the show and hinted them up to me. So um, we're sitting here in December talking about the show with David Carson, who's the director, and Robin Goldfin, who is the playwright. And uh, and how are you guys doing? Not bad. How are you, Michael? Hello. <laughs> Happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> so I guess very first thing before we get off into tangents, is tell us a little bit about this show um, and maybe how you came to be in, involved with it as well. Because I understand, uh, Robin, that this you are you specified that you were the playwright because somebody else wrote these stories. Exactly. Uh, the play is based on stories by Israeli author Edgar Keret, and I've been reading Edgar's stories for more than 10 years uh, in Hebrew. And uh, maybe five years ago now, I read uh, the title story of his latest collection called Suddenly a Knock on the Door in English, and I thought this would make a great short play. And I started to work on that as a short 10-minute play. And then I discovered that there would be interest in a whole evening of his stories in the theater. So uh, myself and composer Oren Nyman, who's composed the music for the play, uh, read through the book and picked eight stories. Uh, from the book of about 38 stories. He writes very short, short stories. Mm -hmm. And we decided we'd use them, and we uh, got the rights to use them. And then uh, David joined us. <laughs> um, and, and immediately threw a wrench in the works. Okay. That's... Um, because the, the, the first time we met, I, I said, so what do you guys want this to be? Do you want to be like uh, an Ives piece, like all in the timing, where it's lights up, Little play, lights out, lights up, different little play, lights out. And they sort of looked at each other and went, well, I don't know, what do you think? And he said, I think I would be more interested if there were a way for the, an evening to have an arc, if the stories can be connected. Um, and suddenly enough, tells the story of a writer with writer's block and the characters um, who want him to write their stories. And so I thought that that seemed like a framework to me to hang an entire, all, all of the characters' stories on. Um, and so I asked Robin to, to see if he could write that. And um, while it's true, Robin and Oren, um, since they both speak and read Hebrew and I don't, um, ha have done the translations of the stories, I think, brilliantly. Um, but Robin is... Uh, slightly underselling himself as the playwright of the piece <laughs> because he is the one who has created the, 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 the structure that the stories hang on. And uh, we just recently met with some of the actors who have been with us since the beginning four years ago and, and some new actors, and we read uh, the first three stories. By the end of the third story, um, all the characters that we're going to see for the evening have been introduced. And then we just read the connected material and the original material between the stories and then the last story so we could get a, a feeling of whether or not we had actually created an arc on the evening. And I was pretty thrilled. I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be delightful. It works as a play. It does. 
And, and you just brought up a great and you know new little source of talking about, which is how collaboratively a director can can be good to get on a project early. <laughs> I don't know if and you would agree. With or well, that. Or no, not. I would, Igor's going. I wish I'd never contacted David. <laughs> David's here because the first time we worked together was over ten years ago. Yeah. I came to him. He didn't know me. I saw a show that he had directed, so I found out his phone number, and I said, I'm developing a solo play. I want you to be my director. And we uh, collaborated on that in the summer of 2005 for the Midtown International Theater Festival. And I kept trying, our first few meetings, I kept trying to convince Robin that I shouldn't direct this piece, that I wasn't sure that what he wanted to write was something I was, I would be a good director for. And, uh, it was, it was one of the most enjoyable collaborations I've ever had. For both of us. Yeah, it was a great fun, and we yeah. became good friends through it. The piece is dynamite. It's called The, Eth the Ethics of Rav Haimi Goldfarb, and it's, um, it's a marvelous little piece, and Robin Ronnelly wrote it. He also performed it, and Robin it has a past as a dancer, but not a lot as an, as an actor, and his performance was wonderful, and we just stayed friends. Yes, and I've hidden my past as an actor from David. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> because I have a past as an actor. Yeah. Uh, you but, could have fooled uh, me. You, the way you say that makes me wonder if it's like uh, <laughs> a pantsless acting. <laughs> no, my past as an actor goes through uh, Stella Adler and uh, some oh studying. And, uh, and I've always enjoyed performing but then realized I wanted to concentrate more on writing and then, uh, and then dancing. So I did that for a while. But this play back in 2005, it was probably going in six different directions. And David came in and said, it has to go in one direction. And it became a much better play because of that. So for Suddenly Knock at the Door, I'm going to... Yeah. Let, let's assume that most of our listeners don't under, know the, the stories that are underlying this. Probably Can you tell don't. us a little bit about what these, these stories are? Sure. Uh, Edgar Carrot is one of Israel's most popular writers. He's also a, a filmmaker. Um, an essayist. An essayist and columnist and uh, a really smart and sweet and wonderful man. And he's been, funny. Oh, he's been so generous with us. Um, and the stories are whimsical and have supernatural elements and surprises. Some of the stories are like a page and a half long. They read almost like a skit. Um, and some of them maybe run up to seven or eight pages, but none of them are long. All of them are very short. He's known for very short, short stories. I did not know him when, when Robin and Oren came, and I found out that he had been translated into 27 languages um, but only recently had they begun to translate his stuff into English. Mm, no, they've been translating him into English for a while. But not... But <laughs> At least 10 years, uh, more than that. Uh, I don't know exactly, but it's been oh, for okay. a while. But I had not, I was not familiar with his work at all. And um, the stories are magical. Mm. They're whimsical. And um, he also has, he has an extraordinary political and social conscience. Uh, and he lives in... But not a heavy-handed one. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, there, there's. It, we've been privileged to to see him at Symphony Space and at the uh, uh, at the Y, and we were lucky enough this past June or July to share the dais with him at the New School on an evening about collaboration, and he showed uh, a, a lot of. He's very generous with his work. A lot of his short stories Oops, have been... beep, it was at NYU, not the New School. Oh, sorry. They'll think mm -hmm. that's important. Uh, sorry, sorry, yes. <laughs> NYU. 
NYU, and um, where you teach. Exactly. And, and uh, he's, there are lots of short films, filmmakers, particularly student filmmakers, love his pieces because student filmmakers make short films and these are short stories that can be brilliantly adapted. And uh, so part of the evening, uh, I had, in fact, my first exposure before I knew uh, about this piece was I was cruising the channel late one night and I ran across um, a, a series of short student films and there was this one that is uh, the, the one that's based on suddenly a knock at the door, the title story. And uh, I found out later, well, we, we just, the most recent reading we did, um, I auditioned this actress and we cast her for the reading and her best friend, who's a guy, played the role that she was playing in the reading. So she, when she read the story, she went, wait, I know this piece. And she said, was this made into a student film? I said, yeah. She said, my best friend was my part. But it was, <laughs> so, you know, we've bent genders on occasion. So uh, any uh, parting shots before uh, we, I, you know, I have my own little parting shot before you guys give yours in terms of uh, reminding people out there just how small of a world this theater community is in terms of just before you we were interviewing a couple people with APAC Dan Darren. yeah and uh and Ronnie who came up from looking to switch into a career in dressing you know um kind of made that clear and they they were going oh there's this there's this guy and his uh husband is a long-term dresser in the business and maybe I can try to hook you up and then it turns out you open the door you open the door and who and who she was talking about was your husband yeah, yeah. um um, yeah, uh, it, it's far fewer than six degrees of separation yeah. in this business. Um, but that, that, was, that was very funny to see the dev walk out. Um, but just that, you know, just that uncanniness of just right there. But, I mean, it, I think it is important for people to remember. I mean, one thing I love about this business and doing this podcast and, and theater in New York is truly... Everybody is so nice, and you have to be. To I think, you know, I mean, I think sometimes in small, <laughs> I would in, say in, there in, are those who yeah. haven't learned that they have to be yet, uh, and they're not. They're, they're in the they minority. Yeah, they're in the minority because there is you. Everybody works with each other so tightly and so closely yeah. here, and you have choices here. Talent at a certain point in New York becomes the baseline. You know, talent you know matters to get to this baseline, and then after that, it's your work ethic, how nice you are, how you do, and, is what and, sets and, you and ahead. And the people, you know, the people you be every be nice to everyone you meet because if you're meeting them on the way up, you may be meeting them on the way down. Um, the the connections, the community. Um, someone told me, if there's anything else you can be happy doing, do it, uh, because if Counting on a career in the arts is not something that you can count on. Mm -hmm. So if there is anything else you can do, because no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, you can still play in the arts. There are, mm -hmm. it, th this country is filled with fabulous community theaters, college theaters, mm -hmm. uh, town and gown groups. Um, and and in, in New York, there are people who work for 20, 30 years doing showcases while they have jobs as bankers mm -hmm. or they work at Macy's, you know, um, because they, they have to be working in the theater to feed their spirit, but it may never make them a living. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on Thank and being so generous well. with your honesty. And uh, David Carson, Robin Golden, Goldfin. Goldfin. 
Goldfin. And uh, I wish you uh, fun and, as, as what they said in the story, that this is what excites you to be stressed about. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> yes. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up a very long season, not in episodes, but in the time it took me to get the episodes out. Uh, but with the new program at UGF, we've got uh, this program kind of baked in, and they're uh, supporting the program for at least a couple of years to get it on its feet in association with the major. So uh, it's going to be a little bit more regular. I'm Again, I'm going to be back May 15th through 20th doing interviews. Uh, again, Dramatist Guild Fund has graciously allowed... Uh, use of their space. So if you uh, know somebody coming up with a project, get a hold of me. I'm always on the lookout for interesting stories. And the new season should begin in July, after I get everything edited and sorted out. There's a good chance I might have a very special bonus issue uh, coming out by the end of May, but we'll see what happens as I'm booking everything and talking. In the meantime, I'm glad everybody back. It's a joy to be doing this program again, and I look forward to doing it a lot more regularly for you guys. All right, have a good evening. are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.